0: Over the past 18 months, we've become ever more reliant on the internet and its digital infrastructure for our work, information, entertainment, even our relationships with friends and family. What might not be so obvious is that 3.7 billion people, nearly half the world's population, remain shut out from this universe with no access to the internet. I'm Adrian Monk in the World Economic Forum studios here in Geneva. In today's Agenda Dialogues, world leaders will be discussing how we can close this digital gap and build the right kind of infrastructure and technologies to make the internet a more inclusive and accessible place. Our guest today, two ministers at the forefront of tackling these issues, from the United Arab Emirates, Omar bin Sultan al-Allama, from Rwanda, Paula Ngabiri, who's also a board of trustee member here at the World Economic Forum. And we have two more leaders joining from the Edison Alliance for Digital Inclusion, we have Akim Steiner, Administrator at the UNDP, and Robert F. Smith, Founder, Chairman and CEO of Vista Equity Partners. Also joining Co-Founder of Grab, one of the most exciting Southeast Asian technology companies Tan Hui Ling, and finally, Adrian Lovett, who's President and CEO of the Web Foundation. Leading our discussions is the President of the World Economic Forum, my colleague, Berger Brenda.
1: Thank you uh, so much, Adrian. Uh, Great to see you all, and thank you for uh, your commitment in uh, connecting uh, the 3.7 billion people that are not connected uh, to uh, the internet. We're discussing, of course, uh, leapfrogging. We're uh, discussing uh, the Sustainable Development Goals, how to eradicate all extreme poverty in the world by 2030. But without having access uh, to this kind of communication that is also the basis for this program, there is not really a real uh, opportunity uh, to uh, succeed uh, in poverty alleviation and uh, eradication. One country that has put a lot of emphasis uh, on uh, the digital transformation is uh, Rwanda. Even with their own ICT minister, uh, Minister Paula uh, Ingebera, uh, in uh, your country, uh, we know that this is put on the top uh, of the agenda. There is still a job to do, but maybe you can explain us uh, from a developing country like uh, Rwanda how much is at stake and how can we also succeed in the Edison Alliance where we're trying to mobilize also public-private partnerships in uh, reaching the goal that everyone should have a fair and affordable access uh, to uh, the web.
2: Thanks, Borje. And to just answer your question very specifically, a lot is at stake and in many ways uh, from the fact that you know, the global uh, world is all going digital, but I think the COVID-19 pandemic really has been a catalyst for digital transformation for many countries from the way uh, you know, tools have been developed in the, way, in the fight against the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic but also even as we look at how we are using uh, you know, different digital technologies to ensure continuity of services, education, uh, to mention the list. And so Africa and Rwanda are no exception. Uh, obviously, what is really uh, the stacking statistics that we see is, 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 is the digital divide and the disparities that exist. And, and now with, with the rate at which digital technologies are being adopted, I think this is also exacerbating this kind of divide. You did point to the Edison Alliance, which is really uh, you know a platform through which, as we think about bridging the digital divide, as we think about inclusion, uh, at the heart of the Edison Alliance, Are three thematic areas that we believe uh, if we we are able to build the right partnerships that close the gap in healthcare, in access to financial services, um, as well as uh, education, then uh, to a large part, the whole concept of inclusion that is at the heart of the digital transformation agenda will be addressed in a much more inclusive uh, and fair access manner. So uh, as a developing country like Rwanda, uh, this is so central to everything that we do, not just because we are limited in natural resources, but also because we understand that digital technologies are going to help us leapfrog some of the development stages that one would have to go through uh, if we had to follow the natural path that many other uh, countries have gone through. And that's why uh, we've placed uh, keen uh, interest investments. That's why we are you know, using all these partnerships that we can leverage uh, to really put in place the foundational aspects from infrastructure uh, to thinking about affordability of devices, uh, affordability of the infrastructure services that we're putting in place, but also uh, to create the much needed solutions where our citizens can use this infrastructure.
1: No, thank you, Minister. I was also told that during uh, the pandemic there has been lockdowns in Rwanda and millions of school children have not been able then uh, to go uh, to school. And many of these have not even been able then to connect uh, to the internet. How has that affected uh, learning uh, the last two years and what uh, are the necessary steps uh, to take uh, to also uh, know, give these uh, children uh, a real uh, good start when I guess the schools uh, are back?
2: Yes, you're very right. We've had multiple lockdowns and all of this was because we're trying to curb the spread uh, of the COVID-19 pandemic as we built the much needed capacity in country uh, to deal better with how uh, the pandemic was progressing. And so what has happened was that uh, while we still had many of our children or households that lived uh, in communities much, much as they were connected, they were within coverage, they still did have either the devices or even the content was not yet digital enough for them to be able to afford uh, to to connect to some of these platforms. And as you can imagine, the the learning losses that we are seeing globally that are happening in many uh, countries have also, uh, we see a big um, gap in terms of the learning losses that we've experienced over time. So to answer your question, what are we doing? Um, So obviously, the traditional education system, the classroom-style type of learning, is probably not going to cut it for us. Uh, And so what we are doing now is now the the same way we see uh, COVID-19 being a catalyst for digital transformation is to think about what other tools can we put in place to complement this in-classroom learning. Uh, The platforms that are being developed to ensure that this is fully accessible uh, to our students. Uh, And as you can imagine, even when we didn't have you know, many kids that could connect to the internet, then we turned to radio and TV. Obviously, you don't have the same, um, you know, you, you don't have the same quality, but at least you, you you minimize further the gap that would have been if we didn't, uh, you know, use these alternative channels. And so even under the Edson Alliance, as we look at the different um, edtech programs and platforms that can be deployed um, to really complement uh the, the current in-class classroom uh, t- type of learning, we do hope to sort of close on that gap uh, in the shortest time possible.
1: Thank you. And uh, it also has had a huge impact uh, uh, on uh, women uh, in Rwanda, I'm told.
2: Absolutely. It has had, well, it has had a lot of impact, not just on women. I think it's also for many people that also live um, in some of the, uh, you know, rural communities, as you can imagine, all the disadvantaged groups that even before the pandemic had uh, you know, in a certain, to a certain extent been excluded um, you know, from, from you know, being part of this digital economy. And so what we see, um, obviously, in some of the efforts that are being put in is to say, how do we make sure as we think about inclusion, as we think about recovering faster, how do we make sure that we are tackling those pockets of our communities? That were even excluded before the pandemic and continue to be excluded uh, because of the rate at which some of uh, uh, the the, the digitization efforts are happening. So what are we doing to close on that? Um, Whether it is from an access perspective, how do we drive access, last mile connectivity, we're making sure these excluded groups are prioritized in terms of uh, making sure they have access uh, to, to, to to digital connectivity, but at the same time, even thinking about solutions like, you know, affordable devices and services and prioritizing some of these uh, marginalized uh, groups.
1: Thank you. Uh, let us now uh, move uh, from Rwanda uh, to the UAE and um, to Mr. Minister uh, Omar. Uh, you're a minister for artificial intelligence, but I know that you are also um, very much uh, engaged in the whole ICT um Uh, topic and uh, we know that uh, also uh, done in the right way artificial intelligence uh, can create jobs. It can also uh, increase inclusion if it's rolled out uh, in the right way. So uh, maybe you could share with us how you see uh, also opportunities uh, related uh, to uh, the new uh, and emerging technologies for emerging countries and also for developing countries.
3: Uh,
4: Thank you, Borges. Thank you very much for having me. And it's a great panel with a great set of speakers. Um, With regards to the digital divide, with regards to how the world right now is progressing um, in terms of its uh, improvement and and development, we realize that developing countries have a much higher likelihood of adopting FinTech, for example, of adopting AI, of using these new technologies in ways that does not threaten legacy systems that might have existed there in the past. Because if you think about it, starting from zero and making the investments is much easier than starting from a threshold where you've already spent billions on your infrastructure and you need to improve it or overhaul it. So in terms of FinTech, for example, if we're going to take FinTech as the example, the African nations like, for example, Kenya, like Rwanda uh, and, and others, are much far ahead than than some countries that might be, for example, situated in Europe with regards to deployment of uh, these fintech solutions or deployment as well of regulations with regards to that and the accessibility when it comes to that. The challenge remains that today these countries do not have equal accessibility across the villages and the countrysides and the different cities, uh, which is a challenge that needs to be addressed on a global scale. Now, uh, what we do also realize is some of the cultural and inherent challenges in these countries can be resolved, and the UAE is one of them by the way, can be resolved by allowing more access to technology. So for example, women that today might not feel comfortable going far away from their homes or their villages to work can actually get uh, jobs online, for example, in certain fields like for example, coding or or, um, even if you look at artificial intelligence specifically like labeling specific uh, images to help these algorithms learn better they can get jobs that are more suitable to their cultural requirements. But what hinders them is accessibility to the infrastructure necessary to be part of the digital world.
1: Well, thank you for that. I think you're so right that fintech uh, already we've seen have revolutionized uh, a lot of the way uh, money is being wired uh, in many developing countries. Look at uh, Kenya, where 75%. Uh, of the banking is now uh, on mobiles. We also saw during the pandemic that um, being online uh, was a prerequisite for really having access uh, to education. But we also have seen that um, the whole internet and online can also give access to education um, in rural areas that don't have high-quality teachers, if they have teachers at all. But how do we make sure in the future that uh, also uh, children in developing countries and emerging uh, economies can uh, have the benefits of online uh, education? Of course, a prerequisite for that is also that you have access to the internet. And many of them have that during broadband, but we know that, uh, or, or during the 4G, and that again uh, leads to quite high prices uh, for these uh, families. So it, it's, it's very complex. So how how, how would you uh, attack this, and as part also of the Edison Alliance, uh, to make it into an opportunity um, for uh, children as access to education?
4: Great question. Thank you very much for that, uh, In the UAE, for example, when COVID struck, we were able to quickly move from conventional education to virtual education. Uh, it took us less than two days to do that. And it's because of the increased investment over the years that we did. Um, within the COVID pandemic, we've realized that over 100 million students lost access to education, which is a big issue globally, because if you think of the most at risk areas, so refugee children, for example, in the refugee camps, they might have already lost education the year before and the year before that as well. So they've lost probably three to four years of potential education years that they haven't gotten. We launched a program uh, from the UAE called the Digital School, which was to offer digital education to the uh, most, let's say, at-risk students um, in refugee camps, in villages that don't have access. And the first roadblock that we actually found is that these uh, countries do not have the infrastructure necessary to connect to the internet or to have a good connection that um, allows for the student to get a seamless um, connection to the, the classroom. Now, how we wanted to solve it, and this is just me trying to share with you the, the complete value chain, is we actually gave them iPads with the downloaded sessions for them to learn. But then the, the challenge that arose after that was the fact that the environment that the child is in is not an environment that is conducive of them being educated. Because, for example, they have other siblings, their parents are at home, they have other let's say, chores that they need to do, or they need to go and collect water, or they need to get food. So it's very important for governments to work together to create that environment. A great success story was one that we found in Egypt, where during the pandemic, the Egyptian government decided that instead of giving iPads or doing something online, they actually just streamed the basic education requirements on TV. So there's a channel that you can actually switch on and you can learn English, you can learn mathematics, you can learn sciences. And they did not target specific students, they made it into a a lesson that the parents can take, a lesson that the um, uh, children can take as well. And we've actually tried that model in certain countries and it worked. The most important thing is for us to know that there is no one size fits all, for virtual or online education for the whole world. The challenges are different. Some countries have challenges of incentives, other countries have challenges of access, and other countries as well have access of content. They don't have the right content. So what needs to be created is some sort of alliance where we're able to share these best practices. Instead of reinventing content every single time, We, we just create it once and we give it, instead of trying to you know, make these mistakes and learn. We actually put all the, the guidelines and the learned outcomes and share with each other.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Minister. I think this is uh, the right uh, segue uh, into Akim Steiner, the administrator of UNDP. And Akim, uh, unfortunately, during the pandemic, we saw that uh, at least 100 million people were pushed back into uh, poverty, uh, and some of them even extreme. Uh, poverty. We know that the uh, digital divide is uh, also a part of the future solution, but is also uh, potentially no, um, really creating increased inequalities for those that don't have uh, access uh, to broadband and uh, the Internet. So, uh, here, we, of course, uh, look at the Edison Alliance as one of many ways of closing this gap. So share with us your thoughts on this.
3: Thank you, Boga, and uh, a great um, pleasure to join such a distinguished group of panelists. And just listening to Paula to and Omar just now, I think you have brought two countries here that, in fact, um, well ahead of many others, realize that digital is not only about connectivity, it's not only about infrastructure, And I would perhaps begin by saying it's about making digital inclusion a driving DNA of this digital frontier, because the Human Development Report, and you referred just to this phenomenon that, um, in fact, our Human Development Report in 2019, when it looked at inequality in the world today, identified two particular drivers that could either create a great deal more of inequality or a significant reduction in inequality. One of them being climate change with all the associated implications, and the other one interesting enough was digitalization. Now, it was not a premonition, but I think COVID-19 then taught us very quickly, and we just listened to some of the examples in the education sector, but also in the health sectors, Uh, even the functionality of government was um, premised and in many ways either enabled or compromised by the degree to which um, digitalization was already part of a national development capacity. And that has led us in UNDP over the last three years to, to think in particular about how do you take a whole society approach? How do you build a digital ecosystem which on the one hand, the entrepreneur or the startup, the frontier of programming, of technology, of new apps and platforms can thrive, but also how do you ensure that you have a digitally inclusive development process? Because otherwise we will truly leave a generation and a large group of people behind. And I think even the pace of how things are evolving that is critical. So taking a developmental perspective is very much about understanding how um, inequality, not just in terms of access, I mean, we already spoke about access to broadband, the cost also of being able to use it being one. But um, for instance, the education system, is it preparing our school leavers to actually thrive in this digitally enabled economy? Because it is a highly dynamic economy in which very quickly people um, can establish new platforms. Are we putting a financing system in place that allows particularly that group of entrepreneurs that normally in the financial world are not the favorite first-line client, namely the startup, the young people who have an idea and want to experiment. Can governments work with the finance sector to create a financial system that is conducive to that? And so the examples go on. And I think we, um, we very much view, I think, the lessons out of COVID-19, Borger, as being reflected also in the in the Edison Alliance, I mean, there we have now three themes that we are homing in on: financial inclusion, uh, education that we have just spoken about, and health. And I think we we saw during the pandemic, and I you know found many examples so um, fascinating in Bangladesh, setting up a telemedicine platform with um, 3,000 trained medical professionals that were able to reach literally hundreds of thousands of people for consultations online who could not get to a doctor in the midst of the pandemic. These are, you know, truly shortcuts that leverage technology sometimes to the benefit of the poorest or most vulnerable in our community. And I think that DNA of building a digital ecosystem is very much where we also as UNDP, see our role in the coming years, not by inventing it somewhere in a laboratory, but by drawing precisely on the examples that we just listened to from Rwanda, uh, from the United Arab Emirates, and indeed virtually every country that has become a a lab of experimentation right now under duress, but um, nevertheless with important lessons.
1: No, thank you, uh, Akim. I was just reflecting on the situation now uh, on the fiscal side. We have globally launched 14 trillion US dollars in fiscal stimulus. Hasn't happened since the Second World War. 2% of this fiscal stimulus has gone uh, to developing countries. And we know that there are huge investments needed in the years uh, to come when it comes to uh, the digital and digital access. We know that the price of uh, inaction far exceeds the price of action because it's really giving future generations an opportunity. But with the fiscal ammunition now more limited after this big fiscal stimulus, I think we also have to think out of the box and we have to bring the private sector in as investors and give opportunities. So how do you see that? Uh, is it doable and uh, how, how can we uh, also uh, unlock uh, all the investments that are needed and especially then in developing countries and emerging economies?
3: Well. If one speaks generically, one often loses uh, the specificity of context. I mean, there are plenty of examples, including in the developing world, where the private sector has become a backbone of investing in the, um, in the infrastructure, whether it is broadband, whether it is connectivity, the use of cellular technology and so on. And I think we have seen that there is absolutely no reason to assume that the private sector is not an integral part of this um, uh, moment in which we really have to pivot forward. But very often um, there are two factors that will determine um, whether a private sector um, is willing to step up early on. One is the regulatory framework, the policy framework. I think we are still, as countries, whether in the industrialized world, um, in you know least developed countries, scrambling to keep up with the implications of what smart public policy uh, really needs to be in the age of, of a digital economy. And, um, you know, that goes from very fundamental basic issues, such as the rights of of individuals, uh, right through to public policy, enabling the licensing, but also the the operating environment. Um, So that's one. The second, I think, is we need to find, um, particularly in countries where public finance fiscal space, as we often refer to it, is simply not only constrained in general, but with the pandemic has been severely affected. And so against this backdrop, I think a notion of co-investment Is critical, And we have not seen, let's be very frank, the kind of stimulus packages that are currently being rolled out really being leveraged apart from the special drawing rights that the IMF released for a kind of co-investment strategy. So if we take the SDGs as our continued, let's say, global agenda for cooperation, in UNDP we have done analysis and we believe that a SDG push scenario is exactly what we need to come out of this pandemic. And within that, digital is one of the four key areas that we have identified for international cooperation, technology transfer, co-investment. But I think it is precisely the mix of forward-looking, rapidly and agile, evolving public policy that creates the markets, the conditions, the regulatory environment in which the private sector can bring both its technological capacity but also its financial muscle. And here, let's be clear, we also need to hone in on the financial sector. Um, You know, very often the financial sector has an inertia and an element of conservatism also, that in moments of crisis, um, one needs to perhaps address head on because otherwise we will not have the kind of multiplier effect that we're looking for. But let me stop here.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, We have to uh, push uh, for the SDGs, but also as... um, then Akim uh, underlined, we need more co-investing when it comes to broadband, but also addressing uh, the whole uh, digital infrastructure. I think, uh, Adrian, uh, this should be a good segue for you into the private sector too, because we can't do public-private only with public. We will need, uh, uh,
0: there needs to to tango. Absolutely, and um, Akim, you, you talked about the financial sector and conservatism there and i think someone definitely not on that conservative side who has been stepping up is robert smith and robert you know vista equity partners um you're very much aware of another trend that we haven't addressed yet which is even in developed countries there are underserved disconnected populations and somewhere like the us You know, 55% of students who can't get online come from black, Latino and Native American uh, populations. How does a country, an advanced economy, probably the most advanced economy in the world, get to grips with a challenge like that?
5: It's 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 a great question. And, you know, I appreciate you all inviting me here and frankly, the World Economic Forum and the Edison Alliance for bringing not only attention to the matter, but bringing platforms where leaders can come together, talk about this, and actually come up with real solutions. Um, I'm reminded uh, over two years ago in our our last in-person meeting, I had uh, a, a fireside chat with with Chuck Robbins at Cisco. and as we talked about these issues, really started thinking about how do we address them? How do we as business leaders work together? Uh, and invite the public sector to work with us to solve these problems. You know, what we have in America is, is, and what we're seeing, and the pandemic brought it forward is, you know, decades and generations of social and economic injustice that has hit uh, these black and brown communities uh, pretty dramatically. You know, I think about, you know, what we are addressing today, you know, 82% of the historically black colleges and universities are actually in broadband deserts. So if you start thinking about, you know, this is the the group that educates the vast majority of African American engineers and and judges and and, and lawyers and doctors, whereas the institutions that are actually sitting in broadband deserts. So as part of one of the initiatives that we launched the Student Freedom Initiative, Cisco, uh, through Chuck's leadership, as well as uh, with with, uh, ABC Technologies, has actually now committed to uh, building out the infrastructure for each and every of the HBCUs at no cost to them, building a 4G uh, capacity and bringing cybersecurity envelopes around them to protect uh, part of the federal funding, but also enable that student body of over 300,000 per year students to now have access to broadband, 4G, and in some cases, 5G capabilities. So that was the first initiative. You know the second initiative that came out of that is the southern communities uh initiative in which we've now partnered with bcg rich lesser there and, and dan Schumann over at paypal to now build, build digital infrastructure across six southern cities and if you look at the 100 mile radius around those cities that encompasses 50 percent of the african-american population and in that context we're building an extensible capacity not only in in edu- delivery broadband for education but also for telemedicine, you know, Sheikh uh, or sorry, sorry, Minister Omar uh, Alaman talked about you know the investments that are required in utilizing artificial intelligence to actually bring telemedicine capacity into these communities. Well, that, you have to make those investments. Certain countries like the UAE have made those investments. And now we are, we are, you know, in, in embarking upon and engaging U.S. corporations to work with the public sector to now build that infrastructure. And we can deliver telemedicine solutions, education solutions, and banking infrastructure. You know, 70% of African-American communities actually don't have a branch bank. So modernizing that banking community and then bringing capital into that infrastructure is what will create an inclusive opportunity for the small to medium businesses there to actually thrive, gain capital, employ people, train and develop uh, the communities so they can actually uh, move forward in this digital economy.
0: Robert, some great examples there. Just want to bring Adrian Lovett in from the World Wide Web Foundation. Adrian, we've talked here about the opportunities for... Uh, Public private collaboration. Are there examples from your knowledge looking across the whole global scene of really effective partnerships? And can you perhaps explain to us how they've worked and, and what we can learn from them?
6: Yes, thanks, Adrian. And uh, Borga talked about us going into the, the, the private section and it taking two to tango. Of course, from the Web Foundation's point of view, we're, we're the third. Uh, the third arm. Um, So if three is a crowd, I'm I'm pleased to be part of this crowd. And thanks for uh, enabling us to have this conversation. Um, The answer to your question, Adrian, yes, there's been some terrific examples. And the one I would point to in particular would be the way uh, companies and civil society and increasingly governments too have engaged Under this framework of the contract for the web, which uh, Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the the World Wide Web, our founder here at the Web Foundation, introduced a couple of years ago, which sets out a set of uh, principles and then underneath those principles, a set of very concrete uh, actions, a to-do list, if you like, for the web we want. Um, And a very specific um, uh, early output of that framework was what we saw just a couple of months ago uh, coming out of the Generation Equality Forum, the crucial uh, event that happened in early July. Um, and where we saw, among many other commitments, we saw a set of, uh, of, of, of uh, uh, global tech companies, four companies that are responsible for the largest tech platforms, take a set of steps, a set of commitments that they made, made to reduce the levels of online gender-based violence and abuse and harassment towards women and girls online. Now, that came out of a a partnership approach that was actually about 14 months of co-creating policy options and solutions, bringing together uh, representatives of those companies, uh, those in government and responsible for for regulation, and crucially, the voices of those who have experienced uh, that that negative impact of of violence and abuse online and those who advocate for them. Uh, They came together and and co- Created those solutions, so I think that that uh, is one example of the kind of partnership that you're talking about. But I think, if I may, Adrian, add a add another key. Piece that is crucial for the credibility of this kind of partnerships, and it's been alluded to a little bit by Akim and others. Um, you know, in the end, uh, we have to come to a partnership around resources as well. Uh, we've talked in this conversation about the need for for true uh, connectivity, meaningful connectivity that that puts inclusion first and brings everybody uh, to the to the opportunities and the benefits of the internet and the World Wide Web. We know that costs something, you know, and our own. Calculations suggest that's about $428 billion of additional investment over 10 years to provide everyone with a quality broadband connection. That's the equivalent of less than $10 per year for each of the 3.7 billion people who remain offline today. The world needs to make that investment, and we we need to come together. We need to be clear what is the role for the private sector there, what does government need to do, what other actors have to contribute. That kind of investment, we know, delivers an extraordinary return. You look at analysis from the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, for example, finding that achieving universal broadband in the developing world by 2030, that that Sustainable Development Goal that we're all committed to, would deliver around 8.7 trillion dollars in just direct economic benefits. So you know, partnership is needed for uh, for, for all, on all of these fronts. But we mustn't miss, I think, that crucial need to find the resources and the and the political will to deliver those resources to get that extraordinary return for the for the planet. Thanks, Adrian. And
0: you talked about extraordinary returns. And I think it's a great cue to bring in Tanhui Ling from Grab, whose company's really been in the forefront of kind of uh, uh, taking advantage of the digital revolution. And uh, Tanhui, can you tell us a little bit about the way that digital economy has changed and how Grab has has changed in the last couple of years? Because it really has been an accelerant, This uh, this global experience we've all Uh, been suffering through, but it's also accelerated these trends digitally. Can you tell us a bit more about how that's impacted your business?
7: Yeah, great question. Um, So, just a bit of context for Southeast Asia. Uh, Like the rest of the world, digital transformations has definitely been accelerated because of COVID-19. But I think for us, what we've realised, you know, is that we're just at the beginning. I'll give you a couple of data points on this and some um, recovering uh, similar areas like financial inclusion as well. Right now for the region, um, two out of five individuals are unbanked or underbanked. That's still a tremendous headroom for how we can improve accessibility to very core financial services to everyone. Um, additionally, if you look at e-commerce penetration um, as a percentage of total retail sales in the region, in Southeast Asia right now, it's only 8% relative to, let's say, 27% in China or 17% in the States. So as you can see, there are so many different ways for us to think about the different dimensions of growth for how digital technology can continue to to help impact and and improve lives. But I think I also want to to make this a bit more tangible and what this actually means um, to the people that we're serving, right? So even though COVID-19 has helped accelerate the digital revolution, um, it also has been the cause for a lot of disruption. So in a recent survey of our driver partners, it's become very clear that more than 40% of our driver partners that have been joining us have recently lost jobs or had no prior incomes. And literally they're coming onto our platform because we have now become their lifelines to actually you know, survive similarly for our merchant partners as you can probably imagine um with lockdowns with nobody being able to travel with nobody being able to you know get groceries or buy food lots of these folks were left stranded so we brought more than seventy-eight thousand merchants online just during this period just so again we could help them survive um so these are some of the dimensions in in which the region is changing and uh, i'll pause there
0: those are great points i mean Robert, I just want to turn back to you for a moment. We've heard about some of the opportunities that this economy presents globally. To what extent do, can governments and businesses together actually bring people in and show the benefits directly of including people in this new economy? Because I think one of the things, the points that Adrian made and that Ten Hoy's brought out is just what the potential is for this as a transformative uh, kind of moment for the global economy.
5: Sure, and you know, again, it is it is a massive economic impact in uplifting uh, communities. You know, the the to give you some basic information, we uh, support uh, on, almost 1.4 million small to medium businesses, and when we do surveys of what the ROI impact is on those businesses for small businesses is over 900% when they use some form of digital technology in their businesses could be scheduling could be managing their accounting their systems for for payroll etc and it's just a massive economic impact which for a small business means you can hire more people you can actually you know expand the economic activity in that in that community this is information that's that's widely known now, the question is, how do we get you know the large corporations and, and who have this technology, this capability to actually focus on those communities? And part of it is, you know, we one of the things we did with the Edison Alliance is came up with a guidebook for digital inclusion and bond financing. These corporations can now issue bonds. We've given templates and guidelines, and you know, the the, the uh, Edison Alliance and all the partners have been very uh, helpful in, in with my team pulling this together. And in essence, you know, we've seen MasterCard now issue, for instance you know, 600 million in, in these bonds. We've seen Bank of America about 2 billion in bonds. So every large corporation should now start to issue these bonds and then direct them towards the digital enablement of, of the, you know, of each of the communities that whatever we're speaking about. That is a very effective way to to meet some of their sustainability goals of the corporations and also create massive uplift in in the economic opportunity of those those communities. So the data is there, you know, the the real-time experience, the infrastructure is there. Now we just need to drive capital and, and wherewithal and tighten up that partnership. One of the things the government can also do, quite frankly, is in private sector or public sector is think about how they can help manage affordability. Of access, You know, one of the challenges I hear from the carrier providers is, you know, sure, we see that community, but it, it isn't necessarily one that can afford a lot of the, uh, you know, the broadband services. So I think we need to actually, you know, work more closely together to figure out affordable methodologies for delivering this broadband that's sustainable over, over you know, decades um, in those communities so that those communities aren't starved out because of access to, uh, to capital uh, to, to leverage these new technologies. Thanks for that, Robert.
0: Ministers, I mean, you're both of you really on the sort of cutting edge as as Borga mentioned of governmental engagement with these technologies. Sometimes, you know, we've seen uh, almost a leapfrogging taking place as adoption has happened faster, quicker. Uh, We think about drone uh, rollout in Rwanda where you've really been a pioneer. Uh, You know, the UAE reinventing itself really as a kind of 21st century hub for all things digital. Are there places where you think this kind of investment offers an opportunity for developing economies to leapfrog and take a place right in the front rank of the digital revolution? Uh, And maybe I can turn first, uh, Minister Omar, to
3: you.
4: Uh, thank you very much for a great question. Actually, with regards to improving the digital um, infrastructure for a country, you do create economic output from it that actually leads to better economic conditions within the country, more jobs being created. And a great job, if you look at the African countries that are more developed from an infrastructure perspective, you do have more jobs being created on the ground. You do have more startups that are able to scale beyond uh, borders. And also, there's more uh, international foreign direct investment coming into either these countries or or into the companies themselves. So the the economics of this works. And I think the case for it is proven and, and it's quite clear. The challenge is getting to that stage where you have enough people that understand the uh, impact and the potential and you have the right infrastructure to be able to build all these systems on top of them. A, A great example of this is India, by the way. So the UPI system that India created created 10 um, unicorns that are in the fintech space. And today there are probably tens or hundreds of companies that are not unicorns but are going to grow to that level that are either creating complementary services or themselves are becoming champions. And some of the solutions that we're seeing in India do not exist anywhere else in the world. Uh, so so the the play is there. What I think needs to happen is countries need to actually go and support as foreign aid uh, or even uh, foreign direct investment in other countries. So you see the UAE for example is investing a lot in certain developing countries with regards to putting renewable um, energies photo, photovoltaic panels in countries whether it's in Africa or in Eastern Europe or in Uzbekistan as well. There are a lot of investments happening there and from an investment perspective it works. We're, I don't think it's just charity or not just giving them the technology. It's actually a great investment that pays back dividends. So uh, if we can work with with the private sector to put the business case there, because the private sector is what is going to convince uh, the the people who are able to invest, to actually invest, we will be able to convince uh, those investors to go and do it. But I think that this does require some sort of unified effort from both governments and the private sector to
0: make it happen. Thanks, thanks, Mr. Mr. Ngabiri, I mean, are there areas that you think, we've heard from from Robert about some of the places where even in developed economies, we need real efforts to get digital inclusion moving. Are there places where in developing economies that there are lessons that can be adapted to even the most developed economies? Are there examples you have where you think this is something that other people should be doing and advancing on?
2: Absolutely, and I think it did uh, raise uh, an example that I want to piggyback on, Adrian, which was around um, how we're using some of the technologies to leapfrog, um, you know, in certain cases. And I think Rwanda is a perfect example where uh, even the use of drones um, to, to support with the delivery of medical products to some of the, you know, rural, um, you know, health facilities has been a game changer in the sense that when we started deploying, there wasn't even, you know, a set of regu- you know, agreed upon regulations globally on on how you know drones can be used. And I think with the performance best regulations that we are able to put together. With the support of the world economic forum we're seeing many countries you know using this framework uh, to put in place a uh, similar regulation so from a policy and regulatory um, you know perspective there is a lot uh, that can be learned from developing countries because a um, country member who mentioned we don't have legacy systems and so even as we think about deploying technologies we're starting you know on a fresh slate And so that enables us to be able to say, how do we deploy these without some of these legacy systems in place? And I think these are some of the lessons that can be shared. But on the other side, what I also see in terms of partnership, and I know the emphasis has already been around meaningful connectivity, uh, but what we are also seeing, and I will just take an example of Rwanda where, you know, whether it's 3G and 4G, we have over 95% coverage. But when you look at the numbers of usage, they're not commensurate at all. Uh, what you see is you have you know usage at around twenty three percent, thirty five percent when it comes to forty it's as low as nine percent. And so we should be asking ourselves the question what do we need to do? what are the levers that need to be you know uh, you know where we need to galvanize partnerships to sort of ensure that the usage statistics, the rate of adoption in the population is commiserate to uh, the investments that have been made um, as one closes the gap on on coverage. And I think for countries that are already, you know, grappling with, we still have huge gaps in coverage. I think the key question is how do you drive commensurate investments in both, uh, you know, closing the gaps on coverage, but also at the same time looking at things like skills, devices, uh, content, services that are needed to ensure that even when you put the infrastructure, the usage is also there one last thing two last things i wanted to share on this is uh, I, I think when you're asking minister omar around education and how we can ensure that we're closing on the gaps of, um, uh, of on the on the learning losses that we see Just recently in the Edison Alliance, we were looking at an example of the University of Cape Town where they've created an online platform that allows them to digitize all the content to get the best in-class teachers they have within the university to sort of deliver, you know, some of these lessons to kids within South Africa. And I thought to myself, as, a, as, a, as, a, as you know, globally as a family that is facing learning losses because of the pandemic, what would it take to put in place a platform where we're looking at you know, digitizing content, but also making it available to everyone? So it's not something that is very unique to just a jurisdiction that is able to put this together, but we're allowing um, you know, all the students to be able to access this content and, and, and to access the best in class kind of content and and teachers that we could have out there and I think as we grapple with all these challenges we're going to have to figure out these global solutions that are not just unique to jurisdictions but things that can be adapted uh, to every part of the world. Um, So my last point was again on I think In in terms of partnerships, what we see going forward is going to go beyond infrastructure. It's how do we build capacity in our different countries. And these partnerships are going to drive that. When we talk about startups, I think Robert was talking about financing. Uh, That is going to be the biggest gap. We've seen so many innovators raised to the task, to the challenge during COVID to really develop and deploy solutions. But they're not able to scale. And I think as as, as we think about all these partnerships, we need to be able to say, how are we enabling the private sector, the small business? the startups to be able uh, to grow because we need them as partners in recovering faster and better.
0: That's a great cue to bring in both Ten and uh, and also Adrian, but I want to also bring back uh, Burger Brenda into the conversation, Burger.
1: No, thank you, uh, Adrian. I just wanted to follow up uh, shortly uh, on a point from Akim. Saying that we have to co-invest, and then it was Robert's point about we're really now seeing this happening with uh, these digital bonds, and uh, Mastercard's uh, investment there, Bank of America. So. Uh, going back uh, to you, Akim, maybe, how do you see the potential here? Because MasterCard and Bank of America are two of the largest uh, financial institutions uh, in the world. I hope this can take off, and I also would like a short comment uh, from Robert on how uh, he sees this like a snowball effect, and then maybe uh, go to TAN, because this also can have huge impact for Southeast Asia.
3: Thank you, Morgan. I I share very much Robert's um, sense of uh, of, uh, a new frontier opening up here, and I think it's an exponential curve we're going to see. And I speak with some confidence here because, you know, in UNDP, we have spent the last few years trying to develop what we call SDG impact norms and standards, which are meant to, you know, provide governments with the means to connect to a financial world that is increasingly looking at impact as a part of the way that uh, investors want to see their capital deployed. But when we sat down with many players in the financial sector, what they said is, look, for an institution like UNDP to be um, helpful, we know the financial engineering, help us on the impact intelligence, help us on the impact measurement, because that is an area in which we're all struggling. So. Um, in order for a government to go to the financial market and raise an SDG bond as we, we call it which is in a sense analogous to a digital bond or a green bond we spent two years developing these norms and standards that allow for transparency and in a sense for investor and for uh, let's say a country or indeed a company that's you know raising equity to have that transparency and you know it has been surprising how quickly you can then tap into the financial market in mexico we accompanied Mexico with two SDG bonds on the European financial markets, almost, um, I think, 809 million euros, each well oversubscribed. Uzbekistan, uh, another billion, the New Development Bank, almost a billion dollars with an SDG bond. And, you know, this is not unique, but I think we're seeing a financial ecosystem leveraging, if you want, a public policy uh, or a public good agenda into um, a financially investable Proposition, And I think in that sense, I fully share uh, Robert's sense. I think we have to mature this, uh, this platform because it's still nascent. But the exponential potential, I think, is enormous. And this is one way in which we can achieve something. Back to Paula's point, I think, as we often do in the, in the way, folks, and I'll finish with that, Paula, very quickly. Um, there is sometimes this notion, you know, can the private sector do it better? Can the public sector do it better? I think in a moment, like we're finding ourselves in right now, that is the wrong question. It's how one can actually enable the other to be either more relevant, more functional, uh, more significant. And in that sense, I think the SDG bonds is a very interesting example, or indeed digital bonds or green bonds. So um, with that, back to you.
1: Maybe a short comment from uh, you, Robert, on this.
5: Sure, I, I agree. I think I can hit it uh, exactly on the head. It's how do we, you know, do this together? You know, as I understand it, you know, these SDG and ESG bonds now are over uh, almost a half a trillion dollars. Um, and you know, part of the the opportunity there, which we I think outlined, is there's a framework now for issuing these bonds. There's a framework for the use of capital. There's a return associated with that use of capital uh, that has multiple benefits, not just the financial benefits, but the economic benefits for the for the communities and and companies and countries that that this capital is directed towards. And so part of it is, you know, that the treasuries and and large uh, uh, institutions of of government should also be, you know, uh, buyers of these bonds and not just the pension funds, et cetera. And I think that's another way that you can create that exponential support of these initiatives, but letting the corporations actually, you know, direct you know, specifically how they know these bonds can be, you know, that capital can be directed towards, you know, the areas of healthcare and and, you know, financial inclusion and digital uh, enablement and education uh, specifically. So I think, you know, that's where that public private partnership is so important uh, to come together.
1: No, thank you. I'll leave the moderation back to you, uh, ajen I just wanted before you go to Tan to also say that I think ajen had Uh, the other Adrian, uh, Lovett, had a very good point. Uh, He referred to this takes two to tango, what he was really saying, it takes three to tango in this field. We need business, uh, the public with garments, but also the civil society and all the other organizations, uh, including uh, the universities, uh, to move together. But um, over to you, Tan, and then Adrian.
7: Yeah, um, so I think from Grab's perspective, because we are very much uh, on the private side, so. I'll frame the question on how we think about what is our role in solving this very complex problem, right? We have always started with our roots of being a social enterprise, whether it's from, you know, initially trying to solve safety problems with the taxi industry in Malaysia, and now whether it's financial inclusion or even just helping uh, individuals earn an income and get access to food uh, during times of lockdown, that's the role that we've always been trying to So for us, it's more, how do we create products and services that are most needed by the users that we serve using technology and in collaboration with the governments that we are partnering with, as well as other companies that we're partnering with. So I'll, I'll touch a couple of themes on this, because when we think about what is most important when it comes to the kinds of products and services that we're thinking of, we usually think about accessibility equality and affordability. And I'll give some simple examples just with you know, some recent products that we've been launching and, and developing for, for our region. When you think about insurance right now in the States or any developed market, you think about huge, chunky annual payments With technology and for specifically developed markets, what we've been able to do is actually create micro-insurance, where for example, our driver partners are able to pay as little as 10 cents per trip that they provide to aggregate and accumulate up to a long-term critical illness insurance. And this is really, really important because if they did not have access to these micro-loans, micro-insurance, micro-savings programs, it would not have been something that they would have considered affordable for them because it was scary. These big thousand, ten $10,000 payments are very, very scary for them, especially when they're living hand to mouth each day. So that's one example. Secondly, uh, when it comes to equality, I'll, I'll talk a lot about maybe the inequality that's happening with this transformation. From our experiences in Southeast Asia, there are two specific segments that seem to be getting naturally left behind, whether it's the elder generation or traditional MSMEs who were not digitally native. And for us, this is where things like collaborations with the government partners that we work with are really, really critical. So for example, in Singapore, we actually have been hosting a bunch of digital clinics at local community centers, you know, where there's a high population of elderly, where we help them actually figure out how to use different digital technologies or even get accustomed to digital payments and e-wallets like, like our Pay service. And the next one, in just in a different country, Malaysia, same region, but very different um, you know, user profile. We partnered with the government of Malaysia in a recent program where it's called ePanjana. They were trying to distribute financial relief during these difficult times to as many citizens as possible. And they, they knew that doing it via digital wallets was really important because it is the future. It is more efficient, it is better, it's safer. And they wanted to partner with companies like us so that we could reach the scale that they were hoping for. And we were able to make it work really well because with this program, we actually saw four times greater participation among seniors, right? So I think for us, the most important thing is we continue to think about problems of what are the most important problems that our users need, particularly for the mass market, for particularly for the underserved. And then how do we work together with the governments that you know we're here hand in hand with, taking this journey with? Because ultimately that is the most important role for us to play.
0: Tan, thank you very much. Um, we're drawing to a close. I just wanna give the very quick final word to Adrian Lovett from the Web Foundation. And Adrian, from everything you've heard, we've heard an incredible array of different initiatives from literally every corner of the globe. How optimistic are you that we can really make some progress on this digital inclusion
6: agenda in the next year or so? Oh, I think we have to be optimistic, based on uh, all that we know the the internet can do, the web can do, and that partnerships in support of the web uh, can achieve. And I, you know, those in- incredible stories that Tam was just telling of of impact. Uh, I also think I take a lot of uh, encouragement from um, Minister uh, Paula's reference to uh, to meaningful connectivity. You know, when I joined the Web Foundation four years ago, as CEO, I, I think there was a, a rather binary understanding of connectivity. You you either on or you were off, which of course is ridiculous. Um, you know, the, the, the person who only gets on through a, uh, you know, an internet cafe once or twice a month uh, with a very dubious connection is in a completely different uh, uh, experience for them than those of us who have multiple devices always on 24-7 and so on. And yet the, we're both counted, both those people are counted as connected. Uh, and yet meaningful connectivity means access every day access through a smartphone or a computer, access through a 4G or, or higher connection and so on. And of course, as, as, as Minister Porter said, you know, with the digital skills and with the relevant content that makes sense to, to each of us in our particular context. So I do feel encouraged, I do feel hopeful, and I think we've got a, a more full and, and sophisticated understanding of what connectivity really means and also a bit of a sense of the path uh, for finding the resources and the political will and the partnerships to, to actually achieve it. Adrian, thank you
0: very much. From here in Geneva, it's a huge thank you to all of you for joining us and to all of our guests. Many thanks from myself and my colleague, Burger Brenda. Have a very good rest of your day. Thanks for joining.